Friday, the 30th of March, 1855, a Danish newspaper printed a letter, a letter that contained a stinging attack on Denmark's Christianity. In sneering tones, the author of this, uh, this letter hit out at the church's leaders in the country, and I just want to read you a little part of it. Thanks be to you, you silk and velvet clergy, who offered your services only when it appeared that profit was on the side of Christianity. For if only a few poor, persecuted, hated men were Christians, where was the silk and velvet to come from? And honor and all refined by the appearance of holiness. Disgusting. Even the most abandoned scum of humanity have this advantage over you. Their crimes are not extolled and honored, worshipped and adored, as though they were Christian virtues. Uh, this denunciation of the church's clergy appeared, as I say, in the Danish newspaper <clears throat> in 1855, and it was really only one letter in a whole series, a series of blistering assaults on the state church that was being undertaken by the theologian and thinker Kierkegaard. Now, his diagnosis was piercing. Um, he had attacked the reputation of the local bishop uh, just a few months earlier in, at Christmas time. The bishop had recently died, and Kierkegaard did not mince his words in his commentary on the bishop's life. The bishop, he announced, was no witness to the truth, for the simple reason that the bishop had lived a life of satisfaction and acclaim and enjoyment. A witness to the truth, Kierkegaard pronounced, one of the genuine witnesses to the truth is a man who is scourged maltreated, dragged from one prison to another, and then at last crucified or beheaded or burnt, his lifeless body thrown by the executioner in some out-of-the-way place. For Kierkegaard, you see, witnesses to truth are, and I quote him again, unappreciated, hated, abhorred, then derided, insulted, and mocked. A far cry indeed from the the plaudits that the bishop had cultivated and indeed had accumulated. Um, To Kierkegaard, you get the impression that Christianity is anything but fashionable or trendy. Well, no, I I just don't know. It's it's hard to know where where I should go from here this morning, isn't it? I mean, I mean, if what he says is true, or even in the in the remote neighborhood of truth, I might be well advised to stop now before you begin following out his instructions. I mean, insulted, mocked, hated, beheaded. I I don't really, I don't fancy that this morning. What deeply troubled him, of course, was the way in which the official religion of the Danish state had departed from New New Testament Christianity. And and his language, as you can tell, is pretty rough going. Uh, It's really pretty hard to take. But will you indulge me by just listening to one more extract from these very famous letters. When one sees what it is to be a Christian in Denmark, how could it occur to anyone that this is what Jesus Christ talks about? Cross and suffering, crucifying the flesh, 
suffering for the doctrine, being sacrificed. No, he says, in Denmark Christianity marches to a different melody to the tune of merrily, merrily we roll along, roll along, roll along. You see, it's the church's complacency and indifference, its self-satisfaction, its self-congratulation that he thinks is so utterly repulsive. Now, you'll be glad to know that I think there are good grounds for, for thinking that Kierkegaard was a little bit over the top with his melancholic disposition. I'm sure we could write OTT over much of what he said here. And certainly, he didn't seem to grasp the biblical understanding of the joy. As Whitney was speaking about this morning, I didn't know she was doing that, of the joy that we are to experience indeed in the beauties of this world. But still, you know, I really don't think that we can use his temperament as a reason for ignoring him altogether. Any more so than thinking he was only talking about Denmark and in Northern Ireland, surely we're bound to be okay. Uh, no, no I, no, I don't think so. You see, I begin this morning with this most prickly of Christian thinkers who so harshly attacked the religion of his day and its cozy consolations is that it seems to me that his words are uncomfortably, painfully, disturbingly close to one of the themes that snakes its way right through the prophecy of Amos. In that disturbing passage that Philip read powerfully for us this morning, And what is that theme? It's this, the evils of religion. The evils of religion. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I I tried to introduce you to the spirit of Amos, uh, the prophet from Tekoa who trekked across the border into the northern kingdom of, of Israel sometime around the middle of the 8th century B.C., to proclaim judgment on the nation of Israel. And you remember, if you do, from a couple of weeks ago, we we thought a little bit about his strategy. First of all, he began by castigating the economic and political evils of the nations that surrounded Israel. But, But then we saw how he turned with irresistible logic to Israel itself. You see, it was because... God loved them. It was, be, it was because they were God's chosen people that he focused upon them. Being God's people did not insulate them from God's judgment. Uh, do you recall what, uh, what he said to them in chapter 3, verse 2? Uh, wonderful start to this verse, and then the devastating twist in the tale. This is what he says. God speaking to Israel, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. Can I take a few more minutes to to have a little look further, I think, at at Amos's diagnosis of Israel's condition and as he tries to take its, what should I say, its spiritual temperature It's a pretty rocky ride, I I have to tell you. Now, now Philip didn't read for us chapter 4 this morning. Um, I think maybe if only one of us get attacked this morning, (laughs) it might be better if it's me. But chapter 4 begins with a really offensive but fairly colorful blast. He's speaking to 
the cows of Bashan. Now, Bashan was a place that was noted for its fine cattle. Uh, We know this from a variety of Old Testament passages, particularly from Deuteronomy and and Ezekiel. Uh, Bashan in the cow business was the hallmark of quality. I mean, a bit like Sheffield for steel. The Bashan cattle, cattle were sleek, hungry, strong, determined, and extremely well cared for. They were pampered. They were cosseted. Now, I'm going to have to be politically incorrect here this morning. You see, for, for Amos, this is the picture that he portrays of the society ladies of his own day. Uh, I used to read this in the King James Version. Somehow it didn't really have the power, but let me read it from the King James Version. It doesn't really convey the shock of this. It says in the King James Version, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, which oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. I mean, the NIV is closer to the point. Hear this word, ye cause of Bashan on Mount Syria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Here were women with voracious appetites, living a life of indulgence and luxury. It was debauched and a corrupt way of life and shamelessly built on the suffering of the poor and the needy. Their desires were actually the indirect cause, I suppose, of the economic oppression that characterized the whole society. They creamed off the benefits of the financial system, but gave nothing back in return. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. In fact, the whole society is implicated in the corruption. Look at chapter 5, verse 11 that Philip read to us this morning. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. You see, see, the courts were intended, of course, to protect the weak and the vulnerable. But here they're used for the very opposite. Here they actually legalize exploitation in the name of justice, exorbitant interest rates, Extortion, bribery, forced tribute, all of this to sustain an extravagant lifestyle of mansions and vineyards. These had become commonplace in in, in Israel and, and therefore were enshrined to be protected in Israel's legal system. The small farmer, the real backbone of the economy, was plunged into poverty, maybe through a series of bad harvests, and then forced to borrow at loan shark rates. Soon the farmers head over heels in debt. And the land-grabbing merchant class swipe the land and sell his family into slavery whenever he can't make the repayments. And it's legal, of course. It's all above board. It's all in agreement with the mortgage arrangements that the farmer had signed up to. It's all signed and sealed and has the approval of the courts. It's all within the law. And it's all hated by the God of Israel. Uh, If you flick over to chapter 6, I think chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, 
portray a superb picture of an advanced civilization in the last stages of self-destruction. Degenerate and dissolute. The vulgarity and pretense. The self-satisfied tastelessness. The revelry, the luxury, the moral bankruptcy seep through how he portrays it. Listen to him from verse 4 of chapter 6. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. I mean, even, even the very language, I mean, you need Desi here to tell you about the Hebrew of this, but, but even, even to an English reader like me, doesn't it convey an image of a, a privileged class sprawling with a kind of couldn't-care-less attitude, with that sort of yawning, affected boredom and the overkill of the vulgar nouveau riche? They're, they're eating a menu composed of the finest delicacies, The choicest lambs, the calves are snatched up for the dinner menu with with no regard for the future. Amos is sickened by it, and what's more, he's sickened by its pop culture. He's sickened, if you read here, by its musical affectations. You see verse 5, you strum away on your harps like David. Maybe, Maybe he's saying something like this. You strum away as if you're Elvis himself. Ugh, dreadful. You prance around as, as though you're Cliff Richard. Now, that's my generation. I mean, feel free to put in your own favorite pop person here. Vulgar. And then he says in verse 6, You drink wine by the bowlful. Let, let, let me bring it up to date. You guzzle down liqueurs in Toby jugs is what he's really saying. Well, I think you've roughly got the picture. (laughs) And and I hope you'd lean something of the kind of man Amos is. He's from the outside. He's a shepherd. He knows the harsh realities of life. He's a dresser of sycamore figs. We saw that last time. But with searing insight, he has the capacity to dig beneath the surface and see what's really going on in this society. His uncompromising analysis of its economic and and social pretensions. His ability is to stand back from the razzmatazz of the culture. He's not being swept along in its extravagant flood. He's not being molded into its heady popularities. He's got a burning heart, but he's got a cool head. And he sees to the bottom of the problem. But there's worse to come. There's worse to come. Amos reserves his most biting cynicism, his deepest sarcasm, his utmost disgust for something else. It's the very thing that people run to in hopes of securing God's favor and blessing. It's the very thing that people cling to as a means of finding comfort and consolation. Religion itself. Religion itself. Religious worship. Religious devotion. For snaking its way through his entire prophecy are moments when he turns his critical eye on the religious performances of Israel's own day. 
and he exposes them for their collusion in the culture of the time. It's a searing critique of the worship, the rites, and the rituals of the entire religious establishment at places like Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. Now, where were were they? They're the Westminster Abbey and Canterbury Cathedral of their time. I hadn't the courage to use a local example. But it's brutal and it's direct. Now, I think you'll catch a, a flavor of it with his piercing scorn and downright mockery if we go back again to chapter 4. He's just issued this utterly insulting diatribe against the women of the day, the, the, the kind of Bashan, the cause of Bashan. But then he says, and do you notice that the, the, the sarcasm in verse 4, he, he says, Go to Bethel. Go to church, he's saying, and sin. Go to Bethel and sin. Now, they'd love to be told to go to Bethel. Amos knows they'd love to be told to go to Bethel because that is where they most engage in sinful practices. And then, in case they haven't got the point, he moves on to Gilgal. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Don't go to Gilgal to get God's blessing or God's favor. Go there because you enjoy sinning. You see, it's in their religious devotion. It's in their very acts of worship that they are furthest away from God. It's there that they're at their farthest remove from what God wants, in the very places where they should have encountered the Creator, where they should have experienced the gift of renewal and the gift of grace and the gift of hope and the possibility of transformation. It's there that they engage in evil itself. Chapter 5, verse 5, that Philip read for us, speaks more directly and without irony. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. The content's clear here. It's not a choice between life and death. Can I put it this way? It's a choice between life and worship. It's a choice between life and what goes on at Bethel. It's a case of God versus religion. God versus religion. Now, these declarations, I think, have, they're all the more remarkable. When we pause to think about the history of those three sites, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba, Bethel had been set up as a national shrine under Jeroboam I when the northern tribes had come together as a separate kingdom. Historically, if you know your Old Testament, it was associated with Jacob, of course, because he met with God there on at least, remember, two separate occasions. For Jacob, it was a place of spiritual encounter and renewal. And it lived on in the imagination of the people of Israel as a sacred place, important in their cultural memory. It was a place that took on symbolic significance so that when you said Bethel, glorious associations came to mind. I mean, we've places like that sometimes. They're not glorious associations, but no one can say to us now Lockerbie or Hiroshima or the Twin Towers 
or Crookpatrick or the Emmaus Road without it conjuring up something to us because the place carries with it a kind of significance. Bethel stood for God's grace, for God's hope and God's assurance. At least, that's what it ought to have meant. Gilgal, it came to prominence during the time of Joshua. It's the site of the people's first encampment when they entered the promised land. You remember that story, don't you? Here, when they cross into the promised land, they erect a commemorative monument of 12 stones that they dug out of the river as they crossed. It was to stand as a monument of their deliverance from Egypt, for their, for a memory of their crossing of the Red Sea. And it's here that they're reconstituted as the people of God. The stones were to be a perpetual reminder of their dark past in Egypt, but also of the sweetness of liberation. It was to be a testimony to God's faithfulness. I've always been struck by this, though, that when they built that monument, they didn't actually build a building. They didn't actually build much of a structure. It was just ten stones that they picked up from the, from the Jordan as they crossed. I wonder why. Maybe an ornate building would have reminded them too much of their days of slavery when they worked as laboring builders for their Egyptian masters. It was a simple, simple memorial. It was supposed to remind them every time they saw it of their great freedom and emancipation. Beersheba is the third one. It's in the southern kingdom, and it too comes under the whiplash of Amos's tongue. It had long been associated with all of the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. It was here that, that Abraham had learned that God was with him in Genesis chapter 21. It was here that Isaac had a night vision in which God told him not to be afraid. It was here that Jacob, on his way into Egypt to meet his long-lost son, received God's assurance that he should not fear going into Egyptian territory. Now Amos invites them to make a pilgrimage to these places because they're quagmires of evil. He invites them to the very places that stood for hope and promise, but now they're sites of corruption. I think the second half of chapter 5 that Philip read is, is the, the apex of Amos's superbly brilliant rhetoric. It begins at verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. You see, the day of the Lord was a phrase that was a favorite one to the prophets. Ezekiel uses it, Jeremiah, Isaiah. It was regarded as the day when Israel's God would rise up and defeat all Israel's enemies and go into battle on behalf of his own people. They looked forward to that day with great anticipation. It gave the nation of Israel hope. It gave them consolation in difficult times. It's even been suggested that at the height of their worship and their religious festivals and their general assemblies, the people would shout in frenzied excitement that God would be with them and that his day was coming, a day of light and triumph when they would be vindicated. 
but that's not how Amos sees it. Listen to verse 18. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. And then to crown it all in verse 20, Philip read it, pitch dark without a ray of brightness. Now these worshippers, they may get emotional release. They may get personal excitement. They may have passionate feelings from the whole experience. They may be carried away on waves of intense fervor, powerful sentiments. But what does God say? What's his perspective? To me, Verses 21 to 24 are the entire high point of the Old Testament. They are the fulcrum of the whole book, a moment of the profoundest insight, I think, perhaps in Old Testament revelation. They're known to you, I'm sure, but they bear reading again. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream. Not religion, but justice. It's crystal clear, isn't it? A healthy bank balance for the church doesn't matter. Energetic worship isn't really that important. Exciting rhythms, solemn harmony, contemporary styles, traditional lyrics, I don't care what your taste is. In this perspective, they're all irrelevant. Giving to the church's funds, even if sacrificial, does not impress this God. What he wants is justice, care for the needy, compassion for the outcasts. That is where his heart is. I'm almost done. A couple of weeks ago, I ended by telling you about my experience of reading Terry Eagledon's lectures at Yale Divinity School and, and that experience, horrible experience I had in that flight to London reading this book. I, I found it terribly challenging to read with, with someone who, so far as I know, is still outside the faith, what he had to say about Christianity. And, and I'm sorry to say that the more I read, the worse it got. Will you indulge me by listening just a little more to him this morning as I come to, conclude, to a conclusion? I quote him. There is a document that records God's endless, dispiriting struggle with organized religion. It's known as the Bible. His point is, you see, that Christianity should not be confused with religion, respectable or otherwise, with comfortable conformity. Jesus, he says, unlike most responsible citizens, is homeless. Propertyless, propertyless, socially marginal, a friend of outcasts and pariahs, averse to material possessions, careless about purity regulations, critical of traditional authority, a thorn in the side of the establishment, 
and a scourge of the rich and powerful. Not exactly a figure on the invitation list for a pre-dawn power breakfast, nor at the same time a pop idol attracting the coolest kids on the block. The Jesus of the New Testament is anything but cool. Eagleton goes on, Any devout Jew of Jesus' time would have known that the things that are God's include working for justice, welcoming the immigrants, humbling the high and mighty. The whole paraphernalia of religion is to be replaced by another temple, the murdered and transfigured body of Jesus himself. To the outrage of the zealots and Pharisees, and he says rednecks of all ages, this body of Jesus is dedicated to all the losers, the deadbeats, the riffraff who are not righteous. My friends, I think they're called sinners. Well, again, I don't know if these are prophetic words. I think they're biased. I think they're deliberately provocative. I think they're partial. I suspect they're over the top, just like Kierkegaard writing about the religion of his day. I think they're the rantings of an ideologue. I think they're the comments of an extremist. You know, that's exactly what I would have said if I had been present at the shrine in Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba sometime around 760 B.C., listening to the ravings of a wild shepherd from the south trying to tell me how to live my life. But I also know this. If he's even half right, or if he's even halfway to being half right, there's still a lot of work that we need to do. I commend that task to you this morning.